Welcome to the American Democracy Lab podcast, presented by the Gephardt Institute at Washington University. Each episode, we invite experts from different fields to share their own take on aspects of modern American democracy. I'm your host, Alan Lambert, Associate Professor of Psychology at Washington University. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Nancy Thomas. Nancy is a founder and director of the Institute of Democracy in Higher Education at Tufts University. Her interests include civic learning and participation in democracy, campus free speech, and academic freedom. She holds a doctorate from the Harvard School of Education and a law degree from Case Western. So welcome to our podcast, Nancy. Hi, Alan. Thanks so much for having me. So let me, uh, just to begin, let me start off with a fairly broad question. So historically, what role were colleges and universities supposed to play in communities, society, and democracy? Well, it's a great question because sometimes people do forget the historic value of higher education. The original campuses were really liberal arts colleges and small cam- small universities that were put in communities so that they, there was leadership for both community life and spiritual life. So they were often organizations that trained clergy, ministers. Um, of course, this is in the 1600s. This evolved over time. But when the framers of our Constitution were working on what a democracy would look like, they also knew the value of education to a democracy and wanted an informed citizenry. And so, for example, Thomas Jefferson established what now is the University of Virginia, and Benjamin Franklin established what is now the University of Pennsylvania. In the 1880s, after the Civil War, there was an expansion of what we call land-grant universities, these universities that are public, they're located in each state, and they are to serve the local state community. And then more recently, and that's 50 years ago, going on 60 or 70, is what what we refer to as the Truman Commission, which was a commission that President Truman put together after the Second World War in an effort to avoid the tragedies and atrocities of Nazi Germany. And in that commission, it was confirmed that the role of education is to create a citizenry that is actually capable of managing public affairs. They're informed, and they're interested, and that's the role of education. So we have a long history of both changing the way higher education operates in this country and creating this huge ecosystem of different types of campuses, but also repeated affirmations of this historic mission. That's a great background on um, higher education's historical mission. So fast forwarding to the present, um, I'd like to hear your thoughts about uh, where are we now, uh, what are we doing right, and are we doing anything wrong? (laughs) Good question. Big question. Uh, So we're doing a lot right. And so if you think about the other missions of higher education. One, of course, is to advance individual success, prosperity, and ability to be a prospering citizen in this country, somebody who actually contributes, and that's part of our capitalist system. I think higher education is worldwide known as being very good at that. And I also think that colleges and universities wax and wane on their relationships with their local communities. But that 
I think we're still waxing, actually, on that one, which is really good news. It means that colleges and universities aren't the ivory towers that they're re- they are reputed to be. Instead, they're a little more seamless with their local communities, and that creates a lot of benefits for a community, both economic benefits and in terms of intellectual capital and educational value. Um, And then the final thing I would say is there is this historic civic mission. The thing about that is it keeps getting reshaped. And in the late 1990s, it was reshaped pretty significantly around perceived declines and actual declines in social capital, the idea that Americans were losing touch with each other, that they would rather bowl alone than in leagues. This is a reference to Robert Putnam's work at Harvard University. And that drove a lot of the efforts starting in the late 1990s. We need to provide students with opportunities to volunteer, to do service. We create a lot in service learning. We do community-based research and community partnerships. And I think that took hold actually with a frenzy. I mean, it's hard to find a campus now that doesn't have a center for civic engagement, which is very exciting and I think a good move. The challenge is that the original democracy mission got sort of tucked into a corner somewhere. And what we ended up doing is treating some of the learning experiences like service or volunteerism or even the newer emphasis on dialogue and deliberation on campus, which I also think is great, as sort of the end goal. And that they weren't the end goal. What the end goal is, is a healthy democracy. And that mission is hard to do, and it's kind of been left behind a little bit. So part of my work is to try to restore it. Ah, so just to drill down a little bit on that, suppose you visit visit a campus, say Washington University or any other institution, and your job is to figure out how is that college or university, how are they doing? Are they doing things well or maybe need a little tweaking? So what are some things that you look for to see how that institution is doing? Yeah. It's such a good question, and we actually do visit campuses and run extensive campus climate studies. We, we are looking at the campus climate for political learning, political engagement, and engagement in democracy. So there are a couple of things. The civic movement in higher education has been very hard to measure. There really aren't objective measures for what do students really care about, and that has made it hard. In our shop, we started a national study on voting. Uh, And voting is not the be-all and end-all of civic engagement. It's not the only way that students engage. But guess what? It can be objectively measured. And it gives you a starting point. And you can say, well, this is a campus where a lot of students care about public affairs. And so that's an indicator, and that comes out of our office. We run the National Study of Learning, Voting, and Engagement, and we're the ones that give every campus that participates in our study, which is as many as 1,200 right now, uh, a voting report saying whether their students voted and a lot of breakdown in the data, such as demographics and age and things like that. So that's one way, but it's an incomplete measure because as I said, voting isn't the only thing people do to become civically engaged. What we also look for, and I hate to sound like a researcher without a really solid research question, but we look for what's in the water at that place. We look for what's in the water. 
So what do I mean by that? What do people care about? What are the norms? What are the values? What are the behaviors? What's the composition of the faculty or the student population? What are some of the structures and programs that are in place at the institution? What are the physical spaces for people to practice the arts of democracy? Are all the classrooms set up in rows or are they set up in round tables or something in between? These are the indicators of what a, a healthy, robust approach to democratic education look like. One other thing is how does the institution handle decisions? Is it a, is it a collaborative, sort of transparent place for decision-making, or is it buttoned up? Is it hard to tell what really matters? Not just, you know, for example, is there a, is there a connection between what matters to the institutional leaders, the faculty, and the students? Uh, the other thing I'll say is that some campuses feel a lot of political pressure, particularly right now. If you look at what happened in Idaho this week, you would know that the faculty have now been mandated to teach in ways that are politically neutral. Now, I don't know how they're going to get around academic freedom. The fact that they're trying to get around it tells you the climate in Idaho for higher education right now. There's been a lot of talk, at least since the middle 2000s, about higher education being, to use one common phrase, hotbeds of liberal indoctrination, and I'm using air quotes here, and that civic learning and participation in democracy are tools of that liberal agenda. What's your take on that? Let's unpack that a little. First of all, are colleges and universities hotbeds of liberal indoctrination? I think that is a highly questionable statement. And there are several reasons why I think it's questionable. One is that campuses that look like UC Berkeley or Wash U or Tufts University, you know, large research universities that have a lot of visibility, that's not the college experience right now. Only 17% of college and university students are provided residential experiences. The 83% others, they commute or they live near campus, but they don't live on campus. It's a completely different experience attending a community college and attending a state university, particularly one in a rural area, or attending something like UCLA. So I think that what's happening is those that are looking for liberal indoctrination are cherry-picking the institutions that they're looking at. In our research, we study community colleges. We study state colleges and universities. We love visiting these kinds of campuses. And I can tell you, I'm not seeing any evidence of liberal indoctrination at those kinds of campuses. The other thing, I think that one of the sources of this is that faculty are are liberal. And there have been many, many studies on that. Now, that doesn't apply across the disciplines. There are some disciplines that are really quite conservative. But the predominance of, of disciplines do draw to them people who are progressive. And if you think about it, that's kind of the job. It's not to be liberal. It's to make progress. And that's the nature of academia. We go into this because we are searching for the truth. And we want to shine a light of th on things that aren't right. And then we want to work to fix them. That's a, that is a progressive agenda, no matter w whether you're heading left or right on the political spectrum. So, yes, faculty members are 
statistically <laughs> left-leaning. However, when we did our research, we found that campuses, the faculty on these campuses had no interest in one-sided conversations. And in fact, many of them played devil's advocate. They would figure out what the attitudes and approaches and worldviews are the people in the room, and then they would augment them with the, what's missing from the room. They often challenged people without challenging them in the direction of their own political leanings. We, we saw a lot of faculty almost playing games with students and saying, I'll bet you by the end of the semester, you're not going to know which side of the political aisle I'm on. And sure enough, and, and the students would guess and they would even guess incorrectly. So I think that faculty are extremely dedicated to what they set out to do, to provide students with opportunities to look at things from all different perspectives and to draw their own conclusions. Other thing I will say about this is that this idea that students come to campus with no ideas in their head and that we just open the tops of their heads and we pour in all sorts of, of liberal, liberal indoctrination is totally crazy. Students come to campus with formed views. They, they don't need to be indoctrinated. And in fact, the youngest generation now is very left-leaning. And so what has to happen is they have to come to campus and have their minds opened. And in fact, if there is any evidence of students moving politically, it is that they move very, very slightly, if at all, to the right after attending a college. So if higher education's role is to educate for democracy, what's the current context? How are we doing? So I think that's a, a really important question. And if higher education is constantly recalibrating over the last few hundred years to address the needs of the times, I think it's time for that recalibration again. So what we really need to think about is what's the health of democracy? What is its future? And what is higher education's role in ensuring the health and future of a robust democracy? So we've got some things going on now. And there was a long runway to them. So I don't want to imply that these are new and some of them are quite old, but what they are right now is acute or there is heightened awareness about some of them. So let me give you an example. Uh, disinformation is a serious problem and you combine that with a lack of, of literacy around social media and it gets worse. And then you combine that with a citizenry that is manipulable. And you've got the perfect storm around disinformation, which is why things like big lies and the election is stolen and things that are not at all factually accurate take hold in the minds of Americans. Another one is that we have a long history of social injustice, racial inequality, and other forms of inequality around, around different communities of Americans. And right now, those levels of inequality are extremely high, and they're being used as a rhetorical tool to foment division, to foment hate, and it's giving rise to extremism 
to what we saw on January 6th and the attack on the Capitol, to rise of white nationalism, and to violence. We have to intervene. We have to stop this because we've made a lot of gains in the last hundred years around more equality. I mean, women finally got to vote. (laughs) That wasn't that long ago. And similarly, we had the whole civil rights movement. And what's happening right now is democracy is backsliding. The gains that we made are now, they're, they're slipping away. For some populations in our society, democracy is a dream. It's not a realized condition for their living. And then you've got this fact that for some political actors, they are now using it as a tool to divide people so that they cannot work together and solve public problems. And the, of course, most obvious outcome of that now is violence. So we've got to intervene on that. We've got longstanding concerns about distrust in institutions But, you know, higher education used to be a trusted institution, as did the Supreme Court. And now neither of those are trusted institutions. But it's not just distrust in institutions that's a problem. It's distrust in each other. We are not trusting each other to use good judgment about community community affairs or, or policies or laws. I don't know how you govern in a system that is of by and for the people if you don't trust the people. Um, The last one I just want to mention, but there are more, uh, the one I would mention is the threat to academic freedom. Because what's happening is there is an assault on academic freedom because people do not want higher education to teach to these threats. And they're getting control of state legislatures And they're passing, for example, speech laws that then end up chilling speech. And in doing that, they are undermining the very purpose, the democratic purpose of higher education. So those would be my partial list of threats. That is a really nice coverage of the threats to democracy. Are there any other threats that you see out there that you'd like to talk about? Right now, there are threats to free and fair elections in multiple states around the country. We have a question about the Electoral College. Can it be hijacked? And that was not the intended use of it way back. And so does it still, is it an undemocratic structure in our systems? I think that we've got questions about fair community policing that we need to grapple with. Um, And then, of course, unfair representation. It's, you know, people might have more access to some level of participation, but as a result, are they seeing themselves represented? Do they think that our represented officials are taking care of their their needs and interests. So we've got some destabilizing government systems that are quite threatening, I think. So Nancy, if we want to address these threats to democracy on campus, what would that look like? What do we need to do? Yeah. So great question. Not a simple answer, of course, because I can't just take a course and plop it down on any college campus and say, hey, teach this. I think what we really need to start doing is embedding these themes and knowledge about these threats to democracy across the curriculum and across co-curricular programming. 
So the first thing is continue doing some of the things that you're already doing. For example, serving the community is a very good thing to do. But make sure that if you're running programs on homelessness, your students are also learning the root sources of homelessness and the connection between homelessness and, let's say, power or political decision-making. So contextualize that learning, which I think you at Washington University already do. Another thing you could do is teach students the arts of dialogue and deliberation and collaboration and compromise. Now, I hesitate to, to, to put that up as a, as a to-do list thing. I, I spent a lot of time, uh, seven or eight years actually, running a national network of what I called small d deliberative Democrats, people who were working on campuses and teaching these arts of dialogue, deliberation, discussion, collaboration, and compromise. And I think those are amazing programs that need to be replicated and expanded and available to all students. But I think we also have to have a conversation right now about whether we can talk our way out of these threats. There are a lot of people who would su suggest that this is all about polarization. And if we just come together and talk to each other, and get everybody to listen, we will we will find a way out of it. I'm I'm not so sure that's true anymore. I think that there are, I mean, there's even brain research on how people just shut down their frontal lobes when they are presented with a viewpoint that is not their own. So what you're really talking about is almost how do we undo the fight or flight instinct in our bodies. You know, wait, you're saying something I don't want to hear. I'm not going to listen. So we've got to get people to listen. But more to the point, we need people to empathize. We need them to get into each other's shoes. And that means not just listening, but experiencing and befriending and and working together toward something. So project-based learning, I think, is incredibly important now. But projects around issues of social justice, around issues of unstable governance, around issues of extremism and the growth of white nationalism. I also think that institutional leaders, and particularly in academic affairs where there's heightened protections around academic freedom, they need to take a stand against injustice. And they need to say, that's what we're learning here. That's what our education is all about. We're not neutral. Neutrality is the enemy of educating against the threats to democracy. And I know there's a lot of pressure, and that's easier said than done. And for my lofty research center, it's really easy to say, just don't be neutral. Take a stand on things. But it is something that needs to happen. And it needs to be backed up with behaviors and programs and opportunities for students to, to develop as leaders and as activists, not just people who can engage in a good conversation. Conversations are more effective when they lead to action. Suppose you met a student and he or she just basically, they want nothing to do with politics. Um, so what would you do in those types of situations? Well, it's a good question. And frankly, a lot of people don't want anything to do with conflict. And I don't blame them. I don't either. So, but 
that's that's not the only thing you have to do is to get into some kind of contentious situation. You don't have to run for office. You don't have to create a, a, a animosity with people to do this work. I think one thing that people could do is get involved in communities around projects that are of public interest to those communities and do it in such a way that it actually leads to social change. So social change is the goal here, not engagement in big P politics. Big P politics involves running for office or running campaigns or something about the political process and public decision-making. But what if you were to work on your local communities and make a difference there? That still counts. And what if you wanted to tackle some of these threats for democracy through research or through teaching or through education? And some of it might just be bringing these things up at the dinner table. Hey, I'm a little concerned about creeping authoritarianism. What do you all think about that? So there, there are so many ways to be a quote-unquote good citizen. I don't love the word citizen because it implies some kind of status. Uh, so I'm not using it in the legal sense. I'm actually talking about residents of this nation. But what does it mean to be a good citizen? I used to run this exercise with students, and I'd give them this checklist, and I'd say, okay, do it, rank them in order. What's, who's the best citizen here? And one would be walking a, a frail person across the street, and another one would be signing up for the military, and another one is helping a neighbor do a chore, and another one is running for office, another one is donating to charity, and another one is... Uh, uh, just getting involved in local politics. All There are dozens and dozens and dozens of ways to get involved. The key is to do it in ways that move us as a nation to a stronger, more democratic set of conditions, both in our governance systems and in our structures. So don't, don't stop the work at the work, put the work in a greater context and make sure that when you are involved in these activities, you're thinking about and actually moving us toward a more democratic society. So Nancy, it's been a pleasure and I know we could have covered a lot more ground if we had more time. Um, but before we sign off, is there anything that you'd like to add or pass along? I think it's important for everyone who's listening to understand that this is not unique to Washington University or Tufts University. This is a national movement. Higher education in all of its forms, community colleges to research one universities, are going to get involved. And it provides students with a lot of opportunities that they might not think of such as opportunities to work for some of these democracy reformers out there. There are hundreds of civic organizations doing democracy reform work. So get involved and think about the bigger ways that you can make a difference, not only in local communities, which is critically important, but also by creating a democracy we want, not the one we have. Well, thanks again for joining us, Nancy. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the American Democracy Lab to hear more from expert guests about issues affecting our American democracy.